Well, this morning, as you heard, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And while we heard verses 1 through 13 read, we're going to spend our time this morning examining one verse. One verse that I would put before you as Paul's primary motivation for young Timothy as he writes to him and encourages him to be faithful in suffering for the gospel. We're going to spend our time this morning looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. In 1836, 200 Texans occupied a small mission in the heart of disputed territory. And this band of soldiers and settlers had come together to defend a place that they hoped would be a starting point for their freedom. Against all odds, this small band of daring soldiers and settlers would hold out for 13 days in the face of an enemy numbering in the thousands. While their heroic effort would ultimately end in their death, the reality is that their lives were not given in vain. You see, their stand would go on to embolden the hearts of those who would fight for their own independence, who would come behind them and take up that mantle, some of them following in their very steps, giving their lives in this cause. Their battle cry? Remember the Alamo. And just over a hundred years later, another crushing attack would cause thousands more to take up the fight for freedom. This time, images of sinking ships and lost comrades would embolden them to fight for freedom. Their battle cry, remember Pearl Harbor. So you see, there's something powerful in remembering, remembering the suffering of others that we might be motivated to take action, perhaps even suffer ourselves. There's something powerful for us to look back and take into account what's happened before we arrived on the scene. For those who fought in the wake of the Battle of the Alamo and the attack on Pearl Harbor, the memory was of those who had given their lives in this cause of temporary, temporal, tenuous freedom, right? Freedom that would last for a time but then be gone again. Lives lost that could never be regained. In our text today, there's a similar cry that rings out loud and clear from the lips of this persecuted apostle to his pastoral protege, someone who was coming behind him, learning from his example, not just what he said, but how he lived. A cry that was meant to embolden young Timothy to faithfulness, to continue to endure, to boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel that Paul had preached, that Timothy would preach, and that both of them would suffer for A cry that was meant to embolden him in the face of inevitable persecution as he sought to make that gospel the hope of eternal, lasting freedom known to a world that was opposed to the truth. And Paul's command to Timothy was, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. I think what Paul wants Timothy to grasp as he writes this letter to him, knowing that this is one of the last times he'll have the opportunity to encourage this pastor is that the supreme motivation for faithfulness in suffering for the gospel is a vivid comprehension of the person and work of Christ. The supreme motivation for sharing in suffering for the gospel is a vivid comprehension of the person and work of Christ. That was true for Paul, and it was true for Timothy, to whom he was writing, and it's true for us today. What we need is to see Jesus clearly so that we'll be willing, when the time comes, to suffer well for the advance of the gospel. 
Now, one of the questions that arises quickly as we come to a text like this is, surely Paul knew who Jesus was, and certainly Timothy, pastoring this church, would have known who Jesus was. So why remind him? Why tell him that he needs to remember Jesus Christ? Surely this is an obvious statement. It doesn't need to be written down in a letter and then passed on even so that we would be talking about it today. What's the purpose here? Why tell him to remember? Maybe a better question, why, why do we need to be reminded of things? If you're anything like me, uh, you need reminders. You forget that that meeting is coming up. You forget that you have lunch with that person. And sometimes we just forget really important things like kids' birthdays or maybe an anniversary. We forget things. We're prone to not remember even the most important things. There's lots of factors that can contribute to this. Sometimes it's just flat-out sin, right? We, we sin and we forget the most important thing in Jesus Christ. And that could come from maybe laziness, not being in God's Word. It could come from neglect, maybe a willful kind of running away or shrinking back from our relationship with the Lord. Or maybe even worse, idolatry. Worshiping something else over and against Christ who gave his life for us. So sin may cause us to forget. Sin may keep us from remembering. It could also be sorrow. Maybe this is unmet expectations or unexpected loss. Something that you didn't ask for but took place in your life. Something that you wish was different but won't change. And this sorrow leads us to forget. Could God really be good? Could Jesus really be who he says he is in the midst of this? Maybe another one would be separation. And let me explain. Christ is not physically with us, and the things that most often occupy our immediate attention are those things that we can touch and feel and see. And so because Christ has gone and ascended to the right hand of the Father, we can oftentimes forget because so many things are pressing in on our senses, vying for our attention in the moment. You know, some have said that distance makes the heart grow fonder, but also out of sight can be out of mind. We forget things that we don't see right in front of us. So, maybe it's separation. Paul thought it could possibly be self-sufficiency, and he warned Timothy as much when he said, guard the good deposit entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. It wasn't enough for Timothy to just pull himself up by his bootstraps and try harder to defend and protect and proclaim the gospel. No, Timothy needed help. Timothy needed the Lord's help. Apart from him, Timothy, and apart from him, we can do nothing. We need God's help. Self-sufficiency will cause us to forget where that help comes from. And then, finally, the primary reason Paul writes to Timothy is to tell him that suffering may cause you to forget. Suffering, especially for the gospel, may cause you to wonder if this is really worth it. Is this worth giving my life to? Paul wants Timothy to remember the person and work of Christ so that he can boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ. But Paul's not alone in recognizing that we would need to be reminded of things. Jesus himself, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, says, as often as you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. So even to this day, we need to be reminded of what Christ has done. When we take the bread and remember Christ's body broken for us, when we drink the cup and remember Christ's blood shed for us, again and again, until he comes, we need to be reminded of Jesus Christ. 
we all forget. It could be sin, sorrow, separation or self-sufficiency, suffering or honestly just something else. We are forgetful people and we need to be reminded. We need to remember Jesus Christ. The beautiful thing about verse 8 in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is that Paul doesn't leave any room for doubt as to who Christ is. What it is about Jesus that we need to bring to mind and keep at the front of our minds if we're going to be faithful with the gospel. Jesus Christ, Paul says, is risen from the dead. He's the offspring of David. And he's Jesus as preached in my gospel. We want to look at each of these phrases in turn and understand why. Paul wants Timothy to remember Jesus Christ as he proclaims the good news. So we'll see this really in three aspects of the text. First, we'll see the work of Christ. Christ is risen from the dead. Who he, or what he's done. Then we'll see the person of Christ. Right? The offspring of David. Who Christ is. And then finally, the gospel of Christ. The message that we proclaim. The message that we proclaim. First, let's think about the work of Christ, what he's done. It's exemplified in this first phrase that Paul writes to Timothy when he says, Christ is risen from the dead. And while rising from the dead is one of many miraculous moments in Jesus' life and ministry, it encapsulates and exemplifies really the supernatural nature of Christ's work. What Christ accomplished in his life here. To fully understand the significance of Christ being raised, we need to think of two additional aspects of his work, his incarnation and his crucifixion. So we remember Jesus Christ who came, we remember Jesus Christ who died, and we remember Jesus Christ who has risen. So let's think first about the incarnation. 2 Timothy 2 gives us this inroad, right? This this avenue to understand what Christ has done. It opens the door for this meditation on the work of of Christ. And while 2 Timothy helps us open that door, Philippians 2 comes along and Paul helps us understand more in more vivid detail of exactly what Christ has done in his coming, his living, his dying, and his rising again. Philippians 2 in verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, if you've passed through Philippians 2 in your reading plan, don't move too quickly beyond the amazing statement that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but was willing to take on the form of a servant, to take on human flesh, to be born in the likeness of men, born of the Virgin Mary. To enter our world and experience all of the things that we experience. Living, growing, temptation. Jesus entered into our world. John says that this Jesus, right, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God has made himself known to us through his word, but he's made himself known supremely through the coming of his son. Jesus Christ entered the world so that he could live a life pleasing to the Father. In this incredible way, God was preparing a way for sinful man to be reconciled to himself. This is God incarnate. 
Emmanuel, right? God with us. This is an incredible thing that God would be willing to send his son. Christ would come take on human flesh for us. But Christ didn't come merely to be born and to grow. Part of God's purpose outlined from before the foundation of the world and given to us in God's word is that Christ came also to suffer at the hands of those he came to save. Wicked men who would crucify him, who would nail him to a cross. Christ came not just to live, but to suffer. Verse 8 in Philippians 2 tells us as much. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was willing to take this curse that's on anyone who hangs on a tree for us. He was willing to take the wrath of God so that we might not have to experience that if we would but believe in him. Jesus Christ came according to this purpose to give his life as a ransom for many. But how do we know that this was God's purpose before the foundation of the world? This wasn't some backup plan because we messed things up, because we sinned, because we separated ourselves from God by the way that we failed to obey him. How do we know that this was God's plan all along? Even in this very letter, Paul tells Timothy that God saved us and called us by a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Listen to this, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This was God's design. Not some backup plan or some scrambling effort to make things right that we had made wrong. God desired to save a people for himself so that he could glorify his name. Again, in Ephesians 1, Paul also says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. It's an incredible thing. So lest we think that uh, God was on his heels and unable to figure out any better way to save us, this was God's gracious plan. This was God's purpose, that Christ would come and that Christ would die. Christ came to suffer in our place so that we could be saved and adopted and redeemed. First Peter, Peter says, he, this is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wound, by his wounds, we have been healed. Because of what Christ has done, there's hope for us that we too can be saved. Ephesians 1 again says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. (laughs) Not only has he forgiven us though, he's given us righteousness. The 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us that for our sake, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In him, we have a righteousness, not our own, but perfect obedience, perfect righteousness, perfectly pleasing to a holy God. This is Jesus Christ, as John again says in John 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus Christ is the one who comes and reveals the Father to us. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who comes and takes our sin away 
But Jesus didn't merely die. And this is why Paul zeroes in on the resurrection in his description of Jesus Christ, the one whom Timothy is to remember. Because Christ rising from the grave sets him apart from every other religious leader, good teacher, false religion. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, gives us hope. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us of this, and it's so good for us to know why this is important. To not, to not shrink back from the resurrection or forget the resurrection in our own proclamation of the gospel. When we tell people about what Jesus has done, we need to remember to proclaim the resurrection. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So if Christ just died, then it would seem his purpose in coming has been thwarted. What was intended to be accomplished hadn't been accomplished. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And because of that, we have hope that the things that we do, right, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because Jesus Christ is risen, because he's alive, we can have hope, not just for salvation, but for fruitful, faithful obedience to him. The resurrection transforms how we view our life in this world and faithfulness even in the face of opposition. It also shows, again, that Jesus' work that was finished on the cross was pleasing to the Father. A sacrifice acceptable. No longer needing bulls and goats sacrificed again and again, year after year. He suffered once for us. This righteous Savior for unrighteous humanity. Me and you. It's an incredible thing. Death could not hold Jesus. I love the story of Lazarus. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And it's one thing to call someone else out of the grave. That's a wholly different thing to get up out of the grave yourself. Jesus Christ is alive. And because of that, we can have hope and life in his name. The grave could not defeat him. Sin and Satan have been vanquished through Christ's sacrifice. One more time, let's turn to Philippians 2 and see what we learn in verses 9 through 11. Because Christ in human form was obedient to death, because Christ was willing to die in our place, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we remember Jesus Christ, the one who has come. Remember his incarnation, an incredible, miraculous coming. We remember that Jesus Christ has died, a sacrifice pleasing to God, a sacrifice that could actually take away our sin. We remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, our hope of life, not just here, but for all eternity. Paul tells Timothy, if you would share in suffering for the gospel, you must remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead but he doesn't stop there he doesn't just stop with what christ has done he goes on to describe who christ is to speak of his person who he is in addition to remembering the work of christ paul calls him the offspring of david 
That's an interesting description, and there's much that we can think about when we come to a word like offspring. It may even bring to your own mind promises God has made in the Old Testament. And that's good. It ought to do that. It seems Paul is trying to encapsulate in the most succinct way possible the work and person of Christ so that Timothy would be faithful with the gospel of Christ. So to better understand what it means for Jesus to be the offspring of David, let's consider four pictures of the promised person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the promised seed, he's a promised son, he's a promised servant as prophesied by Isaiah, and he's a promised sovereign. Let's think first about Jesus Christ as the seed. The word offspring that Paul links to David in 2 Timothy brings to mind one of the first promises, the first glimpses of redemption that we have in all of Scripture. In Genesis 3.15, right on the heels of Adam and Eve sinning in the garden, God addresses them and addresses the serpent. And he says this in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This word offspring or seed in Hebrew floods our minds with the promises that would come. Think about how incredible it is that God was gracious to Adam and Eve. Even in that moment, making known to them what would come as a result of their sin. The suffering and death that would result because they had not obeyed God. See, death was promised, but so was redemption and hope. There's a possibility that one is coming who could make things right. So the promise made in Genesis 3 is kept in Jesus Christ, this perfect seed of the woman. But not only is Jesus this promised redeemer, he's also the promised offspring or heir. Think about Abraham. So many prophecies in the Old Testament point forward to one who would perfectly fulfill them. And then they point forward in just the short term to a momentary fulfillment, something that seemed like it might be that promise, but wasn't fully realized. In Genesis 15 through 17, we get this promise of a son, someone to come after Abram. In Genesis 15, Abraham's name is Abram. And we're introduced to this man whom God reveals himself to and makes promises to that, that he would have offspring who would come after him, who would receive uh, the, the blessing of God, who would be a blessing to others. But Abram laments because he's old and he thinks, can God really do this? Can God actually make this happen? But God has the authority to make and the power to keep these kinds of promises. So Abram hears from God, and God says, your very own son will be your heir. So even though Abram is lamenting the fact that he's old and he and his wife have remained childless, God says, no, I will do what I have promised to do. Now, Abram and his wife, if you know the story, they take matters into their own hands. They try to procure a son for Abram so that he can have an heir, someone who would be able to receive all of these things and not someone else from his family. They try to take matters into their own hands. God is gracious to them, and in spite of this, God comes and makes a promise. He promises to make an everlasting covenant, which includes an everlasting possession for Abram 
and his people. But more than that, God promises himself. In verse 8 of chapter 17, God says to Abraham, I will be their God. How is this possible? Surely Abraham would have known the stories of Adam and Eve and how they had sinned and fallen away. And how could it be that there would be the ability to worship God, to be his people? You see, God graciously commits himself to this people, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of his promised son. So in the short term, Isaac comes, and Isaac will, in fact, carry on the line of Abraham, but only one in the line can reconcile sinful man to a holy God. You see, Isaac died and surely couldn't be this offspring forever. God expanded Abraham's family and his household and his land, and he kept his promises. But there was yet a promise to be fulfilled, that God would reconcile these people to himself. A promised son, one who would come, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The promise made in Genesis 17 is kept in the person of Christ, the true son who was to come. You know, another incredible picture is of the promised servant, one who would suffer in the place of sinners like me and like you. Jesus is the promised seed and this perfect son, but he's also a suffering servant. If you will, turn to Isaiah 52. Look briefly at Isaiah 52 and 53 and listen for young plant and root language. Listen to the promise of one who would grow up and come even when things seemed dead and lost. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. These promises must have flooded the mind of Timothy as he heard the offspring of David. Remembering that God again and again had promised one who would come to take the sin and wrath, judgment that his people stood under. The sacrifice who would be pleasing 
to God. The offspring of David, Paul's phrase in 2 Timothy 2.8 is a description of Jesus whom we're to remember. These images that we've seen of a seed and a son and a servant culminate in what Paul actually says. The offspring of David. Jesus Christ as sovereign. Jesus Christ, the promised seed, promised son, and promised servant is the promised sovereign, the king, the ruler. Now, when we think of the word sovereignty, oftentimes we use that as an adjective, right? We're describing God. God is sovereign. He has the ability to reign over all things. And that's a fine use of the word. That's a way that we use that in our English language. But also at its root, it can be used as a noun to describe one who is a king. And in that way, Jesus Christ comes in the line of David to sit on a throne that was said to be occupied forever. Listen to these words from 2 Samuel chapter 7. David hears this from the prophet Nathan, who's telling him uh, what is to come. He says, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So, after David has reigned and lived and died, Solomon comes. Solomon's a good king, admittedly. He's a wise king, and It's even said of him that there was no one wiser, no one like him before or after. Just an incredible ruler. The only problem is Solomon died, and the question remained, who could sit on this throne forever? Who could reign in the line of David to fulfill this promise? Who would be this promised sovereign? One of the amazing things about the Gospels is they unveil for us the weaving together of all of these pictures, sometimes in unexpected places. Now, admittedly, another challenging time for me as I walk through my annual reading plan, trying to read the Bible, is when we come to genealogies. If you've read through Chronicles, you know you get to the beginning and you're thinking, another list of names. I have to work through another list of names? Lord, I know this is your inspired word and I want to to learn what you have for me here, but this is a long list of names and they're hard to pronounce. And there's a list like that in Luke chapter 3. And it's helpful for us because it helps us see that Jesus Christ is in fact all of these promises that we've looked at, the fulfillment to all of these promises. I won't read the entire genealogy to you. I would encourage you to do that maybe even this afternoon. It's Luke chapter 3 verses 23 through 38. So it's long, right? It's Jesus' entire genealogy. You should read this But let me read for you some of the names that you would find there. In this genealogy, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, there are a lot of names that fill in the gaps in between, but think about God's incredible sovereignty, his rule over all things in orchestrating the coming of Jesus Christ. That he would work through Adam's offspring, through Abram's offspring, through David's offspring, 
to bring us Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises God made to his people in the Old Testament, and it's good for us to be reminded of that. It was good for Timothy to remember that Jesus is, in fact, the offspring of David. This is Jesus Christ, whom Paul is calling Timothy to remember as he shares in suffering for the gospel. This is the Jesus whom Paul has proclaimed boldly and identified with joyfully, even at great personal cost to himself. And that's why when Paul concludes verse 8, he describes the message that he's proclaimed as my gospel. Now at first glance, you read that and you think, Paul, that's pretty arrogant. That You would say this is your gospel. What do you possibly mean by calling it my gospel? Well, it's good for us to ask the question to understand why Paul would describe it in this way. What he doesn't mean is that it's unique to him. So it's not unique to Paul. Right? He's not uh, novel in his thinking about this message. It's also not created by Paul. He didn't just come up with this, and therefore it's his gospel that he now peddles as some message of salvation to the world. And it's not confined to Paul, as in he's not the only one who can proclaim the message, which is good news for Timothy, who's receiving the letter and being charged to preach the gospel, and it's good news for us because we can continue to make this gospel known. So this message is the consistent message that Paul has proclaimed regardless of risk or past outcome. Paul's identifying closely with the message because it's so wrapped up in who he is and what he's done, his ministry and his faithfulness with the gospel. Paul has risked much, facing imprisonment, beatings, riots, Amongst many other things that he describes in other places in his writing, Paul has suffered much for the gospel. But this doesn't cause him to shrink back from identifying with this message. So if the message isn't unique to Paul or created by Paul or confined to Paul, what is this gospel? Well, Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 1, he says, I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And then in verses 3 through 4, he tells him what that is. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the message that Paul proclaimed. Notice it includes the resurrection. We want people to know that Jesus is alive. He's not some good teacher buried in some tomb in the Middle East. He's a risen, reigning, sovereign king of kings worthy of our lives and our obedience. This is the gospel, the message that we proclaim. It's also Christ's gospel. Well, what do we learn in the gospel about who Jesus is? Well, first we learn that he's Lord, right? He has the right to command and rule. John 1 again says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him And without him was not anything made that was made. If God, through Jesus, made all things, Jesus has the right to command. He has the right to call for obedience. The right to rule and reign. So he is Lord. But also Lamb. As we discussed, he is a perfect sacrifice, pleasing to God. A Savior and Redeemer. 
John 1 again, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an incredible declaration from John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But lest we think that he's merely a lamb, he is also a lion, a judge, one who will return for his people. In Romans, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And in this very letter, he concludes by saying, Christ Jesus is to judge the living and the dead. So Christ has made all things. Christ gave his life to redeem a people for his own possession. And Christ is coming again to take his people to be with him forever. This is Jesus Christ, the central figure, the hero of the message we proclaim. And for those of you who maybe came in here this morning skeptical about who Jesus is or what he's done, this Jesus that we've just spent the last number of minutes discussing is the Savior that you need today. The one to whom you can run to find freedom, hope, salvation from your sin, and life forevermore. If you came, you don't believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Our prayer is that you would repent of your sin, that you would turn to Christ, and you would be saved. There is salvation in no one else. Acts 4 says, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. So if you came in here skeptical about who Jesus is, may the Lord open your eyes to see him as the promised one who's come, who's given his life so that you could have life in him. There's freedom for you, hope for you, Come to him today and be saved. Romans 10.9, Paul offers this encouragement and assurance. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's incredibly profound and simple all at once. And Christ is offering you salvation today. Now for those of us who are in Christ this morning, the application flows from the text. The supreme motivation for our faithfulness in suffering for the gospel is this vivid comprehension of the person and work of Christ. An ongoing effort to remember Jesus Christ. So as we think about how we can apply this text, I want to encourage you to remember Jesus Christ as we've spoken of today, the promised king who suffered in your place and rose again, giving you hope in this life and the life to come. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in this gospel. Second, follow Jesus Christ in suffering. First Peter tells us that we've been called to this because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. That we should be willing to suffer for doing good, for proclaiming the message of hope. It would be foolish for us to think more highly of ourselves than we think of our Savior. And Jesus said as much. If our master is persecuted, if our master suffered, then we as his servants ought to think that that might be a very real possibility for us. We shouldn't think it strange and we shouldn't think it shameful that we would follow in his steps. That we would imitate Jesus Christ and his suffering. Do not fear suffering. If Christ is risen from the dead, then the worst we could experience in this life is death. But death is now merely a doorway for those who are in Christ, ushering us into the presence of our risen Savior. The hope for us is that Christ has risen, giving us hope of life. 
remind one another of these things. Remind one another of these things. Peter also said that it was good for him to remind them as often as he was with them of the many things that he'd taught them so that after he was gone, they would be able to remember what he had taught them. So it's good for us to remind one another again and again of this gospel that we proclaim. And finally, remember Jesus Christ wherever you go. Remember Jesus Christ wherever you go. This is where I want to get really practical with how we can apply this in our own lives. This week I had an opportunity to have breakfast with someone and we sat down and had a great conversation with the waitress. Really, really engaging. She was kind and courteous and brought us what we needed on time. And we walked away from that breakfast and as we drove away, kind of felt this pit in my stomach. And the question rolled into my mind, perhaps because I'm preparing to preach this text this morning. Did I remember Jesus Christ? In that moment, there was an opportunity to remember what Christ had done for me and celebrate that in front of this very kind young lady to share the hope that I had. But whether it was busyness or just the next thing on the calendar, something had caused me to forget. Something had caused something else to rise to a level of importance in my heart and mind that I missed that opportunity. Now there are countless things like that. And some days we do really well in remembering and some days we miss things like that. But my hope for you and my hope for myself as we go from here is that wherever we find ourselves tomorrow, wherever we find ourselves this afternoon, we would remember Jesus Christ. As you walk into your office and you sit down next to that coworker who's been maybe a little bit frustrating as you've gotten back into the swing of being in the office, remember Jesus Christ. Perhaps they've been poking at you, maybe making fun of what you believe, laughing that you would believe in some teacher 2,000 years gone. Remember Jesus Christ. And if that's the persecution that God has called you to face or suffering, endure that. This morning I was thinking about those who we send out from this place to go to the other side of the world, about what it means for them to remember Jesus Christ, to pick up their lives, their possessions, to leave family and home, and give up everything so that Christ could be made known. Surely it's encouraging for them to remember Jesus Christ. Christ has called us to a task no less significant. We've been called to make the gospel known. So may we remember Jesus Christ wherever we go from here today. And whatever the cost, may we see Christ as worthy of our lives as we proclaim this truth. Let's pray. Father, again, we're humbled that you would save us and call us to yourself. Humbled even more that in your providence you would use weak, inefficient vessels like us to make the gospel known. But God, this was your wise plan to save a people for your own possession who would glorify you and make the hope and life and freedom that we've found in Christ known to those around us. Fathers, we see our city changing. We know that more and more we may face opposition, persecution, and suffering. God, would you fill us with a profound sense of the beauty of Christ, 
May we remember him. May we make him known. God, we thank you for this gospel. Continue to impress it on our hearts. And by your grace, use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.